Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This week I am joined by Joseph Haberly of far, far eastern Oregon. I met Joseph last year on a turkey hunt and it kind of seems appropriate that I ended up back. uh, I met him last year in Kansas and then I ended up in eastern Oregon at his uh, and his girlfriend Olivia's small ranch, uh, spending a few days there turkey hunting. Uh, It was kind of at the end of my Oregon portion of the turkey tour. And I spent, uh, yeah, I think three days there either between, uh, Joseph's property there. And then also hunting the national forest a few miles down the road from him had a fantastic time. We ate some really fantastic meals. Uh, those folks hooked me up with some dried morels they gathered last year. We did a cool rehydration on those, just some real simple turkey cutlets, wild green salad collected both from the yard and their small garden and some, uh, morels and garlics and, uh, and a butter sauce, super tasty meal to end my time there. Joseph is a photographer. He's also uh, getting into agriculture, farming, ranching. And we talk about all that stuff. We talk about his motivation for pursuing his art and the way he's living his life. And you know, to me, this is really a great example of how, you know, if you keep yourself open and willing to have conversations with people, you'll meet really interesting folks, which I'm just more and more aware of the fact that I'm so lucky to get to do that. I'm constantly surrounded by really cool and interesting and inspiring, fascinating people, all kind of facilitated for me anyway, through hunting and food and these, having these deeper conversations. So I actually wrapped up the first three weeks of Turkey Tour, uh, they're at BHA Rendezvous. I've been home for six days. I'm leaving again to head to Michigan for the last week of this Turkey Tour, which will then I'll end up uh, giving a wild game cooking seminar in eastern Michigan for Droth Fest, and that will wrap up my turkey season. I'm actually now heading up to western Michigan to uh, do a hunt with uh, Sitka Gear and uh, NWTF. I'm so looking forward to that. I know this is kind of a long intro, but there's so much stuff happening. I came home in that in that little chunk of time I had to be here at home, and I found out I had broken my toe on turkey tour yesterday at my kid's birthday party. This weird freak electrical fire thing happened, uh, and I was holding it, and I basically got my right hand, my dominant hand, got blowtorched, burned quite badly, of, of course, on my trigger finger uh, where it bends. Uh, it's all blistered up and kind of gnarly, but I've got it wrapped up, and I'm, I'm on antibiotics, and you know the show must go on. So I'm going to make it up there to Michigan. I'm going to keep this thing as clean as possible and try and baby my hand. I should still be able to pull the trigger when the time's right, if we can get on one of these uh, Michigan Easterns. And uh, if not, I guess I'll end up back in, at the emergency room because that's where I was until 5 o'clock this morning. But anyway, I am about 
to get in my van and start heading north. And I'm going to leave you uh, to enjoy this conversation with my friend, Joseph Haberly. Hey, uh, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. Uh, right now, I'm sitting in uh, a farmhouse uh, in eastern Oregon, kind of at the bottom of a valley here, uh, and I'm at the home of one Joseph Haberly, world-renowned photographer, uh, small-time rancher, feeder of souls, feeder of people's tummies. Uh, I met Joe, you know, I met Joe last year, just about this time, turkey season in Kansas, uh, on a photo shoot and we kept in contact. And then when I was coming through the area, I, man, I meant to holler at him, or I guess I meant to holler at you like way earlier, but maybe like a week and a half before I got out here, I called and asked if I could stop by and do a little turkey hunting. And you were, uh, kind enough to oblige. So thanks for having me, man. And thanks for being on the podcast, Joe. Yeah, no problem. Sorry we haven't got you a turkey yet, but we're working on it. Yeah, I'm all right with it. Uh, today is the first day that of like all the turkey hunting that hasn't been like, I haven't had some significant interaction with the turkey. Like yesterday we were out, uh, struck one up down in the bottom of that uh, mountain, I guess, out here, and called him in. I mean, like, almost there five more steps and he would have got it but he just would not jump over this little two-foot creek uh and yeah he finally just like had enough of it i don't know man i also wonder if he saw something because he started kind of put 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 putting uh mm -hmm. back there behind stuff but uh anyway yeah he boogered off and he got away and then today i went back out and i walked about nine miles and never got a, a gobble at all but like weather had changed it had I woke up this morning out of the van and there was probably four inches of snow on the ground. Uh, and this is being recorded on, is it May 9th? Yeah. yeah. May 9th. And there was all this snow, but really, really, really beautiful. Um, it's like some man from snowy river type stuff. Uh, and you know, I didn't really, I kind of figured that the weather was going to shut them down, but I mean, I was out here, I came to hunt, I was going to hunt. I also didn't want to like lose the opportunity to like make that memory, right? Like that might be the only time in the middle of May I'm in Eastern Oregon in the mountains hunting in the snow, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I saw cool stuff, man. Uh, I saw a bunch of deer, uh, bunch of elk prints out there yesterday. Yeah, uh, I found some of those up high because I went to the top of the mountain today. Uh, I saw some quail. I saw a pine squirrel which is like that's my first pine squirrel oh yeah oh yeah man they don't they don't have them where i live uh you didn't see him yesterday uh like from a distance but this was i guess this was i guess my first close interaction like he just sat there 10 feet up in the air on the side of a tree like 10 feet in front of me and just like chirped at me mm -hmm. uh he just like scolded me uh yeah they do that yeah, man, it was a, uh, it was cool, dude. Like, it's always neat to see something for the first time. Anything outside. A guy told me this years and years ago. He said, every time you go out in the woods, if you 
if you go at it with the mindset that you'll always see something or experience something you hadn't experienced before, then that makes every single one of those trips worthwhile. Mm. And so like, uh, like yesterday morning when I was hunting around here, I didn't get on any turkeys, but, uh, like I jumped that covey or there's like two coveys over here of a California quail, like three times and just, they flushed, uh, and I got to see them all and they, uh, you know, they got that little curly Q feather at the top of their head, which is like, I'd never seen that before. It's a beautiful bird. Yeah. This little riparian area out here, it, there's a lot of animals that come through there, deer and antelope even and elk occasionally it's a really cool spot because i feel like you know none of our neighbors have this kind of like pastured area this high up in elevation and so it is kind of a hot spot kind of a highway we've even had mountain lion in there and you heard the coyotes last night yeah yeah they were they were close yeah they were right there i feel like yeah they were real vocal uh and yeah, they had this turkey. So these turkeys that when I was driving here, like three hours before I got here the other day, Joe sent me a video of this mob of turkeys cutting through the uh, pasture outside his house. And every single day at the end of the day, I've gotten these things to shot gobble. And they are all like there's three different wads of them all the way around this property. And they are all roosting. I'd say on the fence like within 200 yards of the fence line uh and it's an it's insanely frustrating uh but it's cool too to get them a shot gobble like even that you know like getting them to hear hear them all around at the end of the day that cacophony that's cool that's worth getting up for yeah doing chores at the beginning and the end of the day you just you hear all different sounds in nature which is pretty cool just in itself, just to know we really are, we are in it. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, there's just everywhere, everything in those woods. A lot of, yeah, like the squirrels or the turkeys or most of the time the coyotes or the frogs too, you know. The even frogs if, are wild out here, man. As cold as it was last night, they yeah. were going. I mean, yeah, it's been snowing pretty much nonstop since December and yeah, they're out there just croaking away. We even have them sometimes get inside the house. We'll find them. They'll come out of the shower or something. They're how big are they? The size of your thumbnail, you know. They're that little, making that big noise. Yeah. I thought those were like big bullfrogs. No, I've never seen a big frog out here. None like the size of the palm of your hand or anything. They're just they're tiny. They're tiny, and they're frogs. They're not toads. They're frogs. That's wild, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, and being on National Forest, I don't know, like that elk hunt we had this past fall. It's just cool being that close to nature, like knowing that we could see our house from where we shot the elk. And it just felt very, uh, you know, land to table sort of situation, especially that night. I think we cooked up something from the garden with the backstrap. And it's kind of a good feeling knowing that you're, you're grabbing your food from here especially you know like the grocery store we call it whole foods prices for you know safeway product <laughs> it's just oh raging up, up expensive. in this little town yeah yeah it's a town of 1500 people so they can kind of monopolize on it but i don't know we try to 
our kind of goal, especially during the summers, is just to not go to the grocery store. Don't go to the grocery store unless it's something you need, like olive oil or something that you. There's no way you could grow out here. Fruits we can grow out here. We can grow vegetables. We get our meat obviously here, and yeah, that, I mean, so we should probably hit on that. So you guys are raising uh, pigs. You've got chickens. Mm-hmm. The first day I got here, you guys were roasting a chicken that mm-hmm. you had killed earlier that day. Uh, and yeah, man, really, actually the way you guys eat is really beautiful actually. Cause it's so, it's so simple. It's a lot of people talk about this, like farm to table or this field to table thing. Uh, but there's all this production around it. Right. And so like that first night it was Olivia went outside, just picked salad greens from your garden plot. And then you had that roast chicken and like, that was the meal. Right. Mm-hmm. Which was completely satiating, super mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you like you didn't feel the need to have like uh, a starch and a veg and a no. in this thing right and a sauce like you ate two things that were super nutritious. Mm-hmm. What were you trying to call it the other day? Nutritionized. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it was super simple. And then the next day, uh, were, are those eggs from your no your chickens? No, I wish they were. I wish that we we've had a hard time with egg layers. Okay, love hate uh, relationship there. But you like made these tortillas that were so good, man. We ate them for the last two days. I mean, maybe some of the best bread products I've had. Uh, and then last, what do we eat last night? Uh, oh, just like leftover chicken with some more of those homemade tortillas and mm-hmm. just greens like, from the garden. Yeah, super, super good. And then tonight we're gonna. I've got a turkey breast. Uh, I think it's the. I think it's the yeah that last bird I killed. Off the Willamette River, um, and we're just gonna do like some turkey breast cutlets and a little salad from the garden. And you guys have a bunch of dried morels that you've collected last year, so we're gonna rehydrate those, and make a little pan sauce with some morels. Uh, and then, yeah, I'm gonna boogie on, try and get a few hours north of here. Uh, I've got this Oregon tag still, so I'm on my way to Montana, but I'm gonna try and stop on a chunk of public ground I haven't been on before some national forest and just hunt tomorrow morning uh, and then start making my way into way 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 far uh, northwest Montana like almost not America anymore almost to Canada did you stop very much on your way towards Southern California did you stop I didn't stop I drove straight I had I had to go it was 30 hours of driving and I had 36 hours (laughs) So I just like drove, drove, drove. Mm-hmm. First night I stopped and slept for like three and a half or four hours or something. And then the next day I stopped like three times for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Just like slept in, in a gas station and then drive until I couldn't. The, the van started weaving. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I didn't uh, I didn't stop, but I did, I did pay a, a lot of attention, man. And it was, that was one of the cooler drives as far as really seeing the topography change and like you know like i woke up in amarillo texas like four in the morning and then drove across two time zones and then like by the end of the day i was in needle california it was 93 degrees Mm. right like Mm. it was almost 50 degrees hotter Mm. uh and in a place that looked uh otherworldly compared to like driving through New Mexico, right? Mm. Which was like one of the prettiest things I've seen. Yeah. New Mexico this time of year is pretty, pretty beautiful. 
Yeah. How, uh, you said, I don't know how close Amarillo is to, uh, to Arkansas where you're from, but it's pretty, it goes from really wet to really dry pretty quick into the badlands. And I wonder like what the, the habitat changes for there for wildlife. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a bunch of critters that exist across the line, right? Uh, cause all that stuff happens gradually. It's not just, it's, I don't feel like it's a hard, hard and fast line. So, you know, say black bears, for instance, like there's black bears in Arkansas and they've moved across the line into Oklahoma and, you know, Oklahoma's had a bear season now because of that for a while. Have you seen that they're, uh, they're finding jaguars in, in Texas? Like spotted jaguars? Uh, yeah, I think that like every once in a while, as I understand it, every, every once in a while, like one will pop up. Mm-hmm. You know, you just get like some crazy roamer who's come up from uh, further down Central uh, Central America. But I think it's very, very rare, man. I, I don't think it's a very common thing. I had a buddy that was on a film set for uh, like a documentary on the guy, that old guy that's been photographing him. And yeah, I mean, they didn't see one, but what, what you talking about that, that, uh, mountain lion hunter guy? No, no. He's, uh, he's this old dude. I think Southern Texas who's been like, he's, he's, he's been there, you know, his whole life. And he's photographed these jaguars multiple times, like these spotted jaguars. You know, that's actually, this might be a matter of semantics, but. You know, some people pronounce it jaguar, and some people pronounce it jaguar. 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 Yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> sounds the same to me. Well, no, like jaguar to me sounds like Jerry Maguire. <laughs> you know, jaguar sounds like a car. Uh, I'll digress. Man, so we'll take it back a year or so ago. Like I alluded to, we met, you were... Uh, you were doing some photography on a hunt that we were on, uh, and it was often slow as turkey hunting can be. Uh, and so we actually did like a bunch of talking in the woods and stuff. Uh, and I was I was super kind of taken aback because I remember I was asking you like, man, like how did you get on this path? You know, you're like a professional photographer, doing cool stuff. Uh, how, you know how did how did you get to this this point? I said, did you go to college for photography? And I hope I'm not exposing too much, but I remember that you pretty much said something to me like, man, I graduated from college or I graduated from high school with like a sub. I'm not even going to say sub what? A, a, a not. I think I had a 2.2. That's just. What? I thought you said it was lower than that. I mean, it might have been. I think I'm maybe playing it pretty strong there. Okay. Yeah. So not the highest uh, GPA. You said you didn't do college. Uh, you just. You said you told you actually you told me you said you know I've never really had a real job, uh, and you're like yeah man I've I've got this like a uh, fifty acre ranch, me and my girlfriend in this like fifty acre ranch in Eastern Oregon, and you were you were twenty seven last year right? Were you I'm twenty seven right now. Okay, so you were were you twenty six then? Yeah. Yeah, so twenty six, and I was like what like, you know, cartoon bug out eyes. Uh, but man, I I always find it so interesting to see how people find themselves in these, uh, you know, maybe folks would find them enviable positions, but it's uh, 
it's it's really just like you're in, you're in a spot that kind of facilitates what you're interested in, right? Which mm-hmm. is this intersection of uh, photography, and if I'm understanding correctly, uh, a real interest in uh, uh, photography being a way to kind of catalog aspect some aspects of like rural Americana or American uh, agrarian lifestyle, and then you're you know you're uh, you're growing your own. It's not a market garden. It's just like a, a home sustaining garden, but you're, you're raising pigs and you're selling that into, uh, direct to customer. Yeah. Like taking it to Portland and stuff. So yeah, man, how did you go from 2.2 GPA to, uh, this pastoral Rockwellian life? Well, my, my parents decided on my 16th birthday that they didn't want to give me a car. They wanted to give me a camera, um, which I, at the time was like fairly disappointed about, but, uh, you didn't have an interest in it before. No, I, I did. I did. I was kind of hoping maybe I could go on for both. Like maybe I could get <laughs> yeah. like a car and a cheap camera. Instead, they got me like a pretty nice camera. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just started taking photos and, you know, back then social media was, I, I Maybe I'm just old, but it was more like it's. It felt more popular, and so I was just po- posting <clears throat> all over social media, and then I got people asking me to photograph their weddings or senior photos or whatever, and and that really took off. And I did, you know, a, a lot of weddings, and for an 18 year old, that was really good money. Um, but then I realized that. I'm I'm never going to be the person to like really care about the the brand of your wedding dress or any any of the wedding related stuff and and then I realized that maybe like that's not the job for me because somewhere out there there is somebody that cares about your the brand of your wedding dress and cares about what's going on during the wedding day and can photograph that with a little more uh, heart behind it and that just wasn't me and I went through a mix of finding out what I, I did care about, you know, just as any young twenties person does. And then, and then, uh, I got, I got really lost and didn't know what I cared about. So I went back home to work on a ranch. Well, it actually ended up being in Southern Colorado and I'm from Wyoming, but I worked on this ranch and, you know, being a cowboy out there at, sunrise all the way to sunset it's really beautiful you're out there with the wildlife and the animals and the scenery and i had this expensive camera with me and so i figured man i should at least photograph that and i started making just a body of work around that and uh it got noticed by a couple brands and then i started photographing for you know stetson and filson and brands kind of like that and then it just turned into yeah this more uh, americana vibe and I I always kind of had the feeling, you know, even when I was doing like outdoor photography, I felt like I needed to have some skin in the game. I needed to feel like I was out there doing it, you know, whether it was like rock climbing, I needed to be able to climb like a 510 or a 511, which is a scale of rating for rock climbing difficulty. Um, and so I felt like if I was photographing that, I needed to be able to climb. And, and so when I started photographing more Americana stuff, I felt like I needed to have 
some knowledge around that, some heart in it, some skin in the game. And so, yeah, just. But you had, you are coming to that with tons of riding experience. And had you been doing ranch work too, or just like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I grew up in like a fairly ranchy community. Um, and so, yeah, it just felt natural that like I wanted to start having my own American life. <laughs> I guess American's a pretty broad term, but like just raising, raising animals and, and selling food to my community felt right. And it's given me uh, a lot of insight into that world to be able to photograph it. And, and now, yeah, I'm, I'm mainly focused on telling the stories of regenerative agriculture and how humans are changing their relationship with agriculture and with the earth to be positive, regenerative, and uh, giving back to nature instead of profiting from it. Um, and so right now that's kind of my focus is telling that story of people who are really finding ways to work with nature to provide food for their communities. And I think that's like a really beautiful thing. And I kind of, I also want to do that. Like when I'm out photographing things, I generally have the feeling that like, I wish I was doing that thing. I want to be doing that thing. I don't want to be like telling the story. I don't know if you ever saw, it was that movie of the American like hockey team who went to the Olympics but anyways, the uh, the coach ended up dying before he saw the movie or before the movie was released, and I don't. I think he had a quote, and I may be way off with this. I really don't know much about the situation, but from my understanding, he said, "I don't need to see it because I lived it," and that's always really stuck with me because, like, I want to be I want to be living it, not just like photographing it for Instagram likes or anything. Not that I feel like I'm doing it for Instagram likes, but I want to be, I want to be doing it. I want to have my hands dirty in the game, not just like a fly on the wall. Yeah. Why, why is it important to you to, to be an active participant in it? Cause a lot of like the, like Amanda Lucier, you know, she's a photojournalist, so she's got like professional and ethical uh, responsibilities to uh, not be involved right. in, in in some ways, uh, so yeah. Why do you? I mean, I'm assuming that you feel like having an intimate understanding of it, and like you said, like having your hands dirty with the lived experience of it is actually allowing you to to document it uh, or memorialize it in a different or more effective way. You know, it it. It's not that I like want to be in the photograph. When I think there's a part of photography and storytelling that deserves to have a little more heart in it than just sending a random person from LA or New York to go photograph something they know nothing about. Um, you know, even when in 2020, when the black lives matter stuff was happening, I was really interested in photographers that were, that were African-American or black or however you want to say it. 
I wanted to hear their perspective. I wanted to see their photos from the experiences that were happening around America, not just David Allen Harvey or somebody who knew how to get access to like the most gritty parts of it and tell like the most crazy photos they could because that really didn't feel like the real experience and I felt like I wasn't gaining the real knowledge that I needed to get from experiences like that and I feel like that was like a perfect depiction of what I generally feel when I'm photographing something you know if the, if my heart's not in it I feel like I can't really photograph it well if I don't like love something in a certain way I feel like I can't really tell its story that well you know it's like me going and taking a, a lady's maternity photos I don't know nothing about being pregnant I know nothing about having kids how could I evoke that emotion through my imagery if I know nothing it, about it? What if it, it was uh, your baby? Yeah, if it was my baby, I want to be taking those pictures all day. Okay. 100%. Because I feel like I have, you know, I, I, I know in my head that's that's my baby. And how do I want to photograph that? And how could I tell the story with a perspective that's enough heart to have a meaning in that image. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that it's really about having an investment, like a personal investment in what you're photographing. hundred percent. How can you know, how can you tell the story if you don't know the story? You know what I mean? Like it would be really weird if the New York times hired me to go shoot the homelessness problem in San Francisco, because I'm a super privileged person that knows nothing about homelessness, knows nothing about the the struggle that those people go through. And not saying, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the best way to, to do that, but I know that I wouldn't know how to evoke the emotions that those people have. I wouldn't know how to tell their story like they do. Yeah, I mean, you know, you also, I don't know that you even have to have a succinct explanation of it. Uh, no. Or or just I think it's really important just for you to know uh what you can do what you can do well at least at this moment in your life, right? Uh and to want to be doing it well and you know to have uh your own personal uh guardrails around your integrity with it, right? Uh now I do wonder I yeah, I was talking uh I was talking to a guy who's a chef about this the other day, right? And it kind of like hits that idea of cultural appropriation, right? Uh and he was like he's writing this uh, cookbook about uh Mexican food. And he did not feel like he could do that uh do that justice without getting proficient in Spanish to the point that he could uh, read it and write it and speak it uh, in a way that allowed him to uh, to represent himself, right? Like yeah. he didn't he didn't yes. want to he didn't want to speak like baby Spanish, exactly. Like yes. he wanted he's a he's a smart guy, he's an eloquent guy. He wanted to be able to to evoke uh, the same feelings that he does with English yes. with Spanish, right? Yes. Uh, so. And I'm not saying you have to have that to photograph a certain thing, you know, I'm, that's just for me, when I go and photograph something and I know that 
I have no clue what's going on in this situation. You know, it's like somebody who's never hunted or knows nothing about guns or, 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 you know, maybe it's archery hunt, whatever, but they don't know that to get a photo, they don't know when to get the photo. They don't know. Yeah, no, that's actually a good example because, yeah, folks don't know when to move, what they can get away with, when they shouldn't be moving, uh, you know, what maybe what the how the birds or something. Right. I see this with ducks, like how the birds will react to the lens flare. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I got what you're saying, man. Uh, just awkward segue away, but I'm like <laughs> sitting here looking. I'm just – we're looking – I want to describe actually your house, man. It's super cool. It's, uh, thank you. It's, and I mean this in the best possible way, but it, it totally like gives me like early eighties, uh, PBS vibes, right? <laughs> like just warm earth tones, lots of wood in here. You said this house was built in the seventies, right? 71. Yeah. So it's like a farmhouse from some back to the landers, mm-hmm. uh, 50 years ago. Uh, yeah, just lots and lots of exposed rough, uh, not rough cut, but just like milled lumber. Like you can see all those kerf marks all on the yeah the stuff up above us. Uh, yeah, and yeah, man, like heated with a wood stove. Even like the music you guys and stuff are playing in here, man. Like just good vibes. Like I was telling Olivia yesterday kind of spicy smelling you know crunchy without being like dirty hippie-ish uh yeah just a rad place and i'm looking out the window and i can see uh i you know i can see a place to keep animals like i mean what is that like a corral mm-hmm. yeah that's a corral look at my cowboy words uh behind us you've got chickens you've got pigs uh over here to the right you've got a couple of horses so so like what are you guys doing out here uh, I mean, and we've been talking about this actually for the last couple of days and, and about like your future plans and where you want to end up, but like, what do your days look like out, out here and, and like all those pigs you have in the back, what's the plan for those? Like, yeah, just what you doing? We are, we're, we're just beginning the start of a, of a farm and ranch operation out here. I think our jobs often require us to travel and then come back home. And so we, we spend most of our time at home and we felt like we could be productive during that time with just our, our bodies. And so we felt like it would be a, a good opportunity to, to provide food for people. Like that's seems like a noble cause. And so, yeah, that's what we're doing out here. We're, we're, taking holistic management classes and trying to apply that with the animals that we have, even though it's not a lot, it's not a lot of land. Um, we're, we're kind of studying that and preparing for, uh, you know, we kind of want to move because this is almost the perfect place for a retired couple or family. Uh, it's not set up infrastructure wise to be, a fully operational farm or ranch it's it's a spot to really come and relax almost like a somebody's mountain cabin and 
We've loved that during COVID. It's been a really awesome place to really focus on what we want in life and what we want to do. But, but it's kind of, I feel like we're kind of outgrowing it a little bit, but yeah, I mean, day to day, it's especially over the winter kind of been hurry up and wait as far as just getting certain projects or chores done and then working on photo at the same time. And then we go and travel and it's the kind of place where you're so excited to leave and then you're so excited to come back. So it's been, it's been wonderful for that, but yeah, I I don't, I don't, I guess I don't know how to answer that question. Um, my life, what is my life? We're just trying to do too many things at once. I think. I mean, so is the goals to have significantly bigger place, like more not land? bigger, not bigger. Um, just set up with infrastructure as far as irrigation or or outbuildings for you know feed storage or equipment or whatever. Playing Tozy with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know what that was at first. Kind of liked it, but um, yeah. I mean, this this place obviously is not very flat, and so moving things around or fencing can be kind of an issue. And it's also not right now, but it is very a very dry place, and so it's also not set up for growth really. Um, yeah, y'all had a fire out there in the woods over the <laughs> summer, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Two summers ago, we had a wildfire start after a big thunderstorm. It sounds like, you know, the, the national forest service came and did a study and a whole test to see what really started it. And it came out undetermined, but their main theory was that uh, a lightning strike started right on that hill. You can see, um, and smothered for the next few days. And, the next few days were the hottest two days of the year. And then it just eventually got to the point where it could start as a fire. And so we saw it as the size of a campfire. And then I ran up there with a shovel and tried to get it, you know, just slow it, slow it down while it was small. And then it got to the size of about an acre before the fire department showed up. And thank God we got it out. We were up kind of all night and, I don't know if you've ever been around a fire that big, but you can barely breathe. The smoke is just all consuming. And so, yeah, you can barely breathe. You're trying as hard as you can to dig a line around it. So it can't really start past that line, but it's so hot. I have a hat that it's just like a plastic trucker hat and it melted onto my head and (laughs) it was, it was a crazy experience, but thank God it didn't spread because out here this forest it's so overgrown that if it would have gotten much bigger i don't think it would have stopped so (laughs) yeah that's uh, man we were talking about this yesterday i think uh being out west has has been really thought-provoking for me because i'm i've never lived in a place where you have to worry about like not having enough water, Mm -hmm. right? Like everything getting brown. I mean, in a lot of ways, some of the biggest problems are, it's like too much much moisture. Like the thing that everyone who's not from there talks about is like when they come to Arkansas is the humidity, right? Like there's just moisture in the air. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it gets hot and 
muggy and miserable in the summertime. But uh, yeah, you were you were saying like so right now we're in the middle of spring, just beautiful out there, greened up, flowers and stuff growing. But in a few months, this will all be dried up and start getting brown and dangerous, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't mean it's the kind of thing where just a spark could really light up the whole mountain range. We've, I mean, fire season's terrible out here. Last summer, we had to just stay inside for a few days because it was unhealthy to breathe the air. It was yellow outside because the sun would shine through the smoke all day. I mean, it was just, it was really gross to be outside. You could, you know, you walk to your car and you're coughing already. I mean, that's another reason why I'm so passionate right now about agriculture because I think it was Joel Salatin I heard on a podcast he said if you if you put an inch of topsoil on on one acre of land that acre can hold 7,000 gallons more of water per year and he on his land has put he's put like seven inches of topsoil over like his 300 acres and it's just when you think about the amount of water that can hold and and the amount it used to hold before the industrial era and and what we've done to the landscape with industrial agriculture. I don't know. It, it, that's why I'm so passionate because agriculture has the power to put that back, give the, you know, that organic material back to the ground, sequester more carbon through that, hold more water, control the, the forests better add you know better habitat for wildlife you know it's, it's a win-win situation because we're also producing better food cheaper food more localized food it's a win for the humans and it's a win for the planet why would we not be interested in that yeah um, man describe describe a little bit when you say regenerative agriculture uh, what you're talking about and you know maybe talk about how you're participating in that so you have traditional agriculture, which is a big, uh, the bad guy in the news right now, right? Um, just giant warehouses putting out tons of meat or vegetables that have been, you know, had a fertilizer on it or pesticides on it or steroids put into it. And it's a, it's a national health crisis because we're not feeding our bodies the right way. We're not letting animal i mean i'm not a professional to speak on this but anyways what we're doing is uh we're using the pigs to to pick through weeds and and eat eat some of the invasive plants like this uh medusa head rye grass out here we're using the pigs to eat that up because they'll eat everything on the landscape root it up totally eradicate it and open up space for more plants like this grass you can see behind us um it we, we had the pigs there they totally ate it down to just dirt last summer and in their feed we put perennial grass seed in it and they basically fertilized that naturally through their feces and and made it a habitable space for these perennial healthy grasses again so um, you fed them you purposely fed them stuff that you knew would like go all the way through them and then get into the soil. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not that hard. Most typical grains have 
seed in it anyways, whether it be wheat or barley or corn or whatever, but you just have to be sure what you're feeding them. Um, and also at the same time with their snouts, they're rooting up these seeds that have been there for who knows how long, but haven't been able to propagate or get the space or the water they need. And so these perennial grasses that have naturally been there for years and years, haven't been able to pop up. And now they are able to pop up. They've been brought to the surface and uh, disturbed enough. And the plants that are that were already there that were suffering from you know, yeah, weeds or water loss are now able to grow in a healthy way, which, yeah, not only does that sequester carbon by those plants growing and taking carbon out of the atmosphere, but it, it holds more water and it creates this wonderful product of meat. You know, this pork, it's hard for me to explain over a podcast, but it's completely, completely different than the pork you'd buy at the store. You have like fat that you want to eat it's not chewy it's it's not disgusting in your mouth it, it actually tastes wonderful and then it's this red pork instead of this white pork that you buy at the store that's been grown on a concrete slab and fed the same feed for its whole life and i don't i mean i can't criticize anybody in, in the agriculture industry because i'm not I'm, like i said i'm not a huge professional we're starting we're just learning but what we've seen so far is like why would we not do this? You know, it's, it's a little harder to move the animals every other day or whatever, but it seems, seems smart to me. Yeah, man. And you've got the space and the time to do that. Yeah. To yeah. make those, make those investments. Uh, and yeah, man, Hey, I had that ham. I ate that ham out of my van over the course of two days. Uh, and it was top notch. Good. Like real good stuff. Man. Good. Good. Yeah. I think just like providing food to our local community feels good too, because it's, it came from right up the hill. I can't remember how many miles it is. I mean, it's something like, it takes like seven calories of energy to deliver one calorie of food to our, like on average in America. And it's like, we're, we're shipping food from country to country. We're shipping it across the country to get it, you know, food from Georgia to Washington or food from Nebraska to California or California to Nebraska. It just seems like backward to me. And, then, you know, you can't grow avocados and grapes everywhere. You can't grow a banana in New York. But for the most part, like things like meat, we can grow in a lot of places there's a lot of land that we can't use for crop production and so it seems like why not why not produce meat in that way i, I don't know <laughs> what so but I, I'm, I'm rambling i'm rambling no 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 man look this is a podcast for rambling uh so i'm, I'm it's actually making me think about so you're so passionate about uh agricultural production of meat uh but you also told me last year that you used to uh used to be an elk guide right like last year your buddy came up here and you took him up there in the mountains and y'all got a bull elk mm -hmm. uh you were talking like that first day i was here you were talking to me about like how passionate your father is in wyoming about uh pronghorn hunting mm -hmm. so where 
how how do those two like protein sources fit into your life? Like one that you're you're growing for the specific purpose of harvest, and one where you're you're going out and you're kind of putting your wits against the world and trying to do the same thing. Well, I think not only are we putting giving a better habitat to the animals that we're raising specifically for meat, but we're giving a better habitat to wildlife. And so it creates a, a better scenario for them, especially as landowners in the U S you know, there's a ton of ranches that are 10,000 acres, 50,000 acres. If those were all managed properly, there's going to be wildlife on them anyway. But if, if, wildlife had a better habitat in those situations you know hunting i don't know what its effect would have on hunting but i know if wildlife populations were in a healthier better place where they could get food easier where they could cross fences easier well i mean no it 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 absolutely ends up improving hunting uh perfect example is quail right so like i'm I'm talking about how cool it is to see these California quail. I'm from a part of the country where the native quail species is a bobwhite. And bobwhites have been largely extirpated from many places in the southeast, right? Uh, and it used to be such an ingrained part of the culture. Like Sam Walton, the original guy who started Walmart, like that was his passion in life was quail hunting. Uh, and... I think they've even got like a Walmart museum where they got like his old truck and his dog boxes and stuff on it. Uh, but yeah, man, by the time you started getting in the mid seventies, it started being hard to find one. And that has a, a lot to do with the way agriculture, agriculture changed. Uh, this, you know, you, you took a bunch of smaller family type farms, right? That had thick edges, habitat like this gunch you've got down here in your little riparian zone that those quail are in and out of the whole time right mm -hmm. uh and that stuff so that cover got taken away then you have the implementation of like bermuda grass uh which bermuda grass grows up real tall and thick and it's hard for little baby quail to run through it right mm -hmm. so yeah if you've got something that's you know uh has a more holistic approach to agricultural production or uh just have if there's room for some slightly more natural processes uh on these landscapes to to take place and to endure then yeah you get better wildlife populations which common sense would tell you is gonna improve hunting opportunity for you know people that are going out there mm -hmm. i mean it's not just land animals too when you talk about irrigation water and the amount of water we use that affects fish populations incredibly yeah yeah that's a great point uh yeah probably especially out a place like out here you know where uh you've got i mean you've got fish in little tiny places little mm -hmm. lots of small little endemic fish in little mountain streams that stay very very cold you got salmon spawning up here yeah. you know this far this far east it's important habitat for them it's you know it's a like process. they're swimming they're swimming in off the ocean and coming this far this far yeah wow yeah and so when we dry up our creek beds and rivers through irrigation you know what does that do to those animals and how are we managing that holistically how are we 
providing a decent habitat for them while still creating food for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, food and jobs and income and money and all the stuff that yeah, you know, makes the world go around. I mean, we we have to admit that humans have a presence, right? There's no we can't just abandon the landscape and expect it to go back to normal because we are here still. And so the best route with that is developing a relationship that as closely as possible mimics nature's way of doing it. And so when we put a lot of fertilizer that washes off into the rivers, when we suck up all of our irrigation water that we can, what does that do to those systems? And what is that doing holistically for ourselves in 15, 20 years? We rely on those food sources, so I would say quite a bit. You know what uh, I was thinking about the other day as well is with all that altruism, and this is not me coming at you. It's just something I've been thinking about. Uh, like, you know, you've got horses out here, like we were talking about. Yeah, maybe non-native or at least developed in North America, and then they were gone for a long, long time, then they're back, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or pigs, right? Mm-hmm. Like completely non-native. Mm-hmm. Uh, chickens, mm-hmm. completely non-native. Uh, but you're still seeing like really great benefit. Like that that spot back here uh, where you had the pigs on it, and you're showing me it's like the best grass in the whole place. And then you're going to take the horses and put them on that, and then they get really good high-quality feed. Mm-hmm. And they're going to recycle that and mm-hmm. fertilize it. Uh, and you can keep it in this this uh working cycle that even though yeah you so even just with the the kind of animals that are you're putting onto the landscape is showing like you know the hand of man so to speak uh it can still be like exponentially uh more in balance than uh you know the extremes that we can get to with agriculture mm-hmm. and i mean just like out of a practical purpose uh it probably makes sense. I mean, look at what's happening right now with the availability of fertilizer like potash and, uh, you know, like uh, petroleum products uh, and the prices of those things going up. It probably makes sense to not have to transport as much stuff as you can as far, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that causes, right, you know, maybe less refrigeration. And then you use... There's some uh, there's some less energy being used on that front too, and like yeah, all that stuff does kind of add up, you know. Like on one hand, it could I could see someone being like turned off a little bit and and say like uh, you know this sounds like the wringing of hands of you know some 1981 PBS vibe, right? Mm-hmm. But like you're coming at it what we've talked about a lot is like you're coming at it from this you know, really fairly kind of conservative Wyoming ranch country perspective. Uh, it's not, it's not really like a bleeding heart mentality. It's, it's, uh, being someone who grew up in proximity to open places and like proximity to people that were, uh, still participating in these agrarian lifestyles. And it's, 
it, it seems to me you're coming at it from uh, there's definitely some moral altruism, but but also just like a ton of practicality and like what makes the most sense, like this kind of heartland of America uh, pragmatism. Well, there has to be chaos and order, right? There has to be there has to be practicality. It has to be realistic. We we can't we can hope and dream all day, but if there's no if it doesn't make sense, then we can do it, but it's going to fail eventually, you know? And I think for it to be sustainable, it has to make sense for everybody, but we have to make a system that does make sense for everybody, not just including us, but the earth, the the animals on the earth, everything around it, you know, we, I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't know how to. No, man, I think it's well said. Yeah. You, 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 you reach the end of the thought. You don't, yeah. have, to, you don't have to keep yeah. pushing it. Yeah. Um, well, so what do you see? Like, what do you see in the future for the next year or two? Like when I talked to you on the phone the other day, you were in Denver doing a photo shoot in Denver. Yeah. And then you're back here. Uh, you've got these piglets that you're, you're starting to see like them put some weight on now. I guess the stuff's starting to warm up. I can tell you're hoping that you don't keep getting snow cause you're over it. I'm, I'm over it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what do you think the next year or two looks like? Just continuing to refine your, your ranch operation and then, uh, still going out into the world and telling these stories with photography. Yeah. I don't, I try not to look too far into the future. I like to have some sort of a plan, but for the most part, staying in the moment, I mean, keep growing the the agricultural side keep growing the photo side um keep telling the stories that i am i want to i do want to put out more uh personal work more passion work um that's not necessarily paid or for a brand or for anybody it's just for me um olivia keeps begging me to do a book I don't know. I don't even know what that looks like, but I have a body of work that I would like to present to the world in a, in a formal way, not just on Instagram or something. Um, should we have, you know, we've mentioned her several times. Can we, can we mention who we're talking about when we say Olivia? Yeah. 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 Olivia's my girlfriend. She's upstairs. <laughs> uh, on Instagram, Olivia B. Olivia B. B E E. Olivia. Normal spelling. And she is a she's a like a very well respected photographer. She's doing music videos. She's doing like long form film uh, projects. Yeah, I'd say she's really focused on directing right now. I'm really excited to see where her directing career goes. Um, she's she did a, a short film. Well, she recorded a short film back in January. They're still working on it. It's turning out beautifully. They shot it all on on film. I mean, video film. Um, which is just beyond me. I think that's really, really cool to do a, a medium that not many people are doing right now. And um, she's working really hard on that, but she's also got these incredible photo projects that she's been taking part of. And she's just trying all these different things, which inspire me all the time. Like she has this probably $20 little point and shoot digital camera that she's trying to just make the best art she can with. And I think that's... <laughs> crazy to me but she's making it you know it really does look good like she showed me this photo of of just of grass today that she took on this like 
$20 shove in your pocket point and shoot. And it's like, it looked like Ansel Adams could have taken that, you know, I don't know. It's just crazy. She has, she, she, in my mind, it's like, you see photographers and influencers and stuff on Instagram. She's the total opposite of that. Just out there to make beautiful, incredible art that completely goes over my head. It's just wonderfully beautiful. Man, sound like a man in love, Joe. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, dude, when we were sitting here that first night and having dinner, and I was just kind of asking her about her story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because she's got like a, she's got like an amount of Instagram followers that's, you know, like, sizable. Yeah, like it's wild. Like you're like, whoa, that's in a different realm. Uh, yeah, and then her telling me that <laughs> she started taking pictures when she was like 13, and by like 14 or 15, she was. <laughs> she was getting like gap contracts and converse sneakers and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, and she, yeah, she was just like this kind of wonder kid, uh, who's not even 30 yet. And she's like almost 15 years into a professional photography career. She, she has the experience of a 45 or 50 year old photographer and she's not even 30 yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what's cool to me is that she's, uh, She's, she's built, she, she, she built this career at such a young age that she's gained the experience that nobody our age has. And I think that's like, I don't know, it's truly special and it's not because she lucked out or anything. It's because she's like truly, truly talented, very, very hardworking and has a a laser beam focus that is, uh, unshakable. And then she comes back here and she. (laughs) <laughs> wrangles pigs yeah it wrangles me and tries to get me to do as cool of stuff and yeah i'm very thankful for that and yeah she helps me wrangle the pigs she helps me move around the horses it, it's cool because she also has this uh duality of passions to share with me around agriculture and around photo so we can we can bounce back and forth together around those subjects and and we can you know we we started this whole venture because we realized that being outside and getting our hands dirty really sparked our creativity and and really changed what we were doing behind the camera and so we wanted to share that with people and we wanted to create a place that we could share that with people and so that's still our main drive is to have creatives out here. You know, we have a little apartment shop scenario where somebody could come stay out here for a month and be in their own space and completely focus on whatever creative endeavors they're doing while at the same time, maybe learning a little bit about agriculture, but mostly just getting their hands dirty and and having a change of pace from maybe the city that they're in or the life that they have, um, which I don't know. I just, I just want to share that with people. I want them to be able to like get their hands dirty and see what that does to their creativity. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, dude, that's basically what I've been doing out here the last few days, (laughs) right? Like stomping around the woods and seeing what you guys are doing and having cool conversations and putting straw in with pigs. Yeah. Yeah. We did a little pig work, uh, Man, it really felt good, it, especially with the snow today, man. It was real reminiscent of this past January when I was up in the mountains in Utah. Uh, and, like, even just walking around, like, the way climbing these steep, steep hills, 
like hits your legs and like your glutes and stuff different. Uh, it's, it's, it was like giving me this like physical sensory memory, like these other really cool memories. Right. Uh, and then like, yeah, we were sitting, we were talking here at the table, like just cool vibes, man. Like little stained glass, uh, chandelier above us and cool music on these just vibing man and we're talking about you know like creative projects and stuff that i'm working on and uh what olivia's working on yeah dude that's uh it, it's really heartening that there's still places of intent you know that exist like this uh and i'm probably a person who has like a lot of romanticism built up around even stuff like, you know, Ginsburg type stuff, right? Like, like all these folks that are doing and like passionate about stuff and they're, they're doing these creative things and, but they're sitting around and they're, they're talking about it and uh, sequestering themselves away for, for certain amounts of time to really focus on that. Uh, yeah. I think some of the best musicians, you end up waiting five years for them to have a new album mm. and you're like, man, it's been five years. Come on, you can put something else out. And you realize like, it's because they're sitting and waiting and making it. You know what I mean? They're letting the soup boil in their heart, which I think is a really admirable thing. When I see an artist doing that, I think, you know, they kind of, they know what's up. I, I talked to, I don't know, somebody that said they knew Frank Ocean. I don't know if they actually knew Frank Ocean, but they said, he's always, always making new music. Like he has so many songs that he could just put out there, but he, he chooses to wait. And he's, chooses waiting, to think. he's waiting for the 12. That makes sense. There's also a lot to be said for uh, allowing space for silence in between things. Mm. Like that's a lot of what I was doing today. Like walking around, yes. just every step I was taking was being purposeful, mm. stopping, and let my breath settle. Like when I was going way up top, man, I'd stop and just like chill. Once my breath would settle, I it'd be you know super quiet up there, right? Because there's all the snow everywhere too. So that's like this insulating, sound absorbing factor. And then you break that with this really scratchy, raspy. And I was using a today. I was using this box call, right? So it's just like wood on wood. And then you just wait and listen. And you're waiting for something to punctuate that that silence, right? Uh, which is a lot of what made it so rad. Like, when I was walking back, I didn't care. I, I thought about it. I really was not upset that I didn't get a turkey. I was glad that I had gotten to go further than I did yesterday because I wanted to see what was up around this corner. Um, I was stoked I got to see the snow and see how that changed everything. And it made things so silent. And I was the only one out there. Uh, and so it was it was this bigness around me that was all mine for that, that period of time, right? No, yeah. I think when Olivia and I were hunting with you yesterday, we did have a brief conversation about that, of just every step. When you're in the zone, every step around every corner has to be precisely planned almost. You have to be thinking about what could be around this turn? What could be over that hill? What could be behind that tree? And how am I going to react to that? And how is every, how am I going to plan out every moment? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a totally different vibe when you're walking out and enjoying the hunt versus walking back. Cause walking back, you just totally lose that 
focus. I mean, maybe you don't, maybe some hunters try to appreciate that. But for me yesterday, for us yesterday, it was a completely different vibe walking back. You know, you're talking a little louder. Yeah, sure. You're not as excited. You know, you're not like, you don't, you know, you've already seen what's around the next corner. Well, we we had also decided to stop, right? Mm -hmm. When I was coming out today, I, I could move a little bit more quickly because, uh, the anticipation factor had been reduced to some degree because I'd already been through there and kind of called my way to where I ended up doing doing a setup and I don't know I sat there for probably forty five minutes fifty minutes, uh, but I still would find a tree to lean up on and call you know five hundred yards a quarter mile whatever it was, because uh, that's the other thing about being out there is you never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the black bear I got this this past year, like I got that bear when I decided I was done hunting. And I was gonna walk back. Uh and it even like put my put my arrow back on the quiver and uh I take my release off my wrist and put it in my pocket. And that was probably one of the best lessons uh, I've learned in the woods, which was that uh I mean, I got lucky that I was able to pull that off because uh, that five seconds or six seconds it took to get everything together could have been uh, could have yielded a very different result. I think experiences in nature tend to be serendipitous that way. Like you almost, if you if you kind of let it happen, it can. That tends to be a little more successful for me. Like I don't know, I, I think it was that hunt back in Kansas when I was with you and Renar, we were just kind of walking and talking before we got to that field. And before we realized that we heard some turkeys and then we just started crawling. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like it almost seems like you, you see more animals or more sign when you're on the road, walking back to the car. Sometimes I do think there's something to animals pick up on intent. So if you see some critters out in a field, walking, ignoring them, and walking with intent someplace else, you can often get closer to them because they're they're not picking up that you're 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 up to something, right? When you're Elmer fudding it through the woods and tiptoeing, you know, and creeping around, I think they pick up on that. Uh, and so, yeah, when you're relaxed and you're you're just kind of moving i think you know if you still kind of try and keep your peripheral open you can you can catch a lot of extra stuff which is i mean we could spend another 30 minutes talking about the analogies for life in a broader sense with that you know Mm. just keeping your peripheral vision open Mm. uh and trying to move with some intent uh so as not to get bogged down but Man, well, uh, yeah, we got to get this. We got to get this turkey situation cooked up here because I would like to, if I can. So today I'm going to be heading kind of northeast in Oregon, and my plan is to stop at this place I've been Google scouting. I think it's about two and a half hours from here, so I'll stop there tonight. Get there in the dark, uh, just find a like a wide spot in the national forest, uh, 
to sleep in the van and then get up in the morning and, you know, hunt four or five hours in the morning, uh, see what I can do while I still have this Oregon tag and then head on out uh, across Idaho into Montana where I'm going to end up for BHA rendezvous. Uh, so yeah, we're going to get this dinner prepared, morels and turkey and maybe something else too, maybe some greens from the garden here. But uh, Joe, thanks so much for letting me come and see what you guys have going on for a couple of days and have some great meals and rad conversations. And uh, Yeah, man, uh, make sure that whenever you guys do get a new ranch, it's in a turkey productive location so I can stop on through. Yeah, I'll work on it. Thanks for coming. Yeah, anytime you can come back. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you're hearing this outro to the podcast, then that means I'm still on the road. I'm still on Turkey Tour 2022. It's been phenomenal so far, and uh, I'm excited to see how it all winds up. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, please do so over at Instagram. The handle is just Black Duck Revival. And if you'd like more information about me and what I'm doing, possibly book a hunt or a fishing trip, just head on over to the website at blackduckrevival.com. Uh, questions, comments, all that stuff you can send to me uh, through the link at the website. And if you guys are enjoying this podcast, like I ask you pretty much every week, please tell somebody, uh, share uh, share it with your friends on social media. Any uh, sort of promotion we can get helps out tremendously. Uh, and I'm so pumped up and enthusiastic these last few weeks while I've been out on the West Coast. Uh, I've been looking at the numbers and we are getting uh, a significant uh, increase in listeners. So thank you so much for everything you guys have been doing. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>